Ann Curry, thank you so much for joining us here on Straight Talk. It's nice to have you back here in Portland. We're at the beautiful Behind the Museum Cafe, and you've been here before. Oh, it's one of my favorite places, and hello to Oregon. I just, it's okay. always such a, a warm hug whenever I've come back, and just to walk around downtown Portland, even now as it's emerging from COVID, uh, it's just, uh, it's just, um, it's like good medicine. It's, it's really great to be back. Well, so hello, back. Portland, and hello, Oregon. And congratulations to you on your Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award from the Murrow School of Communications at WSU, honoring your extensive career. I mean, that must have been a momentous occasion to receive that award. It, it really was. I mean, I've had three former colleagues just invite themselves. My husband even invited himself. I didn't want to ask anybody, you know, to make the big trip, but. They all wanted to come because it is a big deal, um, mostly I think because of Edward R. Murrow's um, high ideals of integrity and courage and, and also humanity. And I think that, you know, to, for anyone I think to have their work sort of be compared to that is, you know, incredibly humbling and, and of course delightful. And on top of that, it, it really targeted the specific work um, that I've been sort of almost kind of almost secretly doing, trying to sort of not talk too much about it, but just making sure that I was in a position to argue for it and get it on television. And that is the work um, that gives um, an opportunity for people who are the least among us, those who are, um, and especially those who suffer, uh, those who are not heard, to give them a chance to speak and be heard by the largest audience I could muster. And so that's been my secret, well, not secret, but just my persistent, almost not too much spoken plan, which is, and really I would, I can say it's been the thing since the Pacific Northwest all the way to New York and beyond. Probably the, the single most, dis, uh, the single most important factor I would think about every time I made a major career decision. Can this lead me to that? And, and it did, and here I am. So it's not for all of that, but also I need to say, or I know you've only asked one question, but I need to say that Oregon made, me, made all this possible, even this award. I mean, if it wasn't for Mrs. Hattie Converse, my English teacher at Ashland Senior High School, insisting that I go to college, even though my family couldn't afford it, even though no one in my family, in the history of my family, had ever graduated from college. Uh, and you know, it wasn't for her, uh, I wouldn't have gone uh, to the University of Oregon and studied journalism. Um, so, and if it wasn't for the Carpenter Foundation in Medford, Oregon, which gave me a little scholarship that gave me hope that I could get through. So, you know, you always have people to, so it's not really your award, really, it's a bunch of others, as people's as well. Well, people admire the work you've done so much, including the dean of the school. I had a chance to talk to oh. Dean Pickleton, and he said you embody what Edward R. Murrow represented just... with integrity and trust in journalism, giving voice to the people who haven't been heard, holding people to account. And he really emphasized your empathetic reporting. And he shared with me a photo of the award that you oh. won, a replica of the microphone that Edward R. Murrow used in his broadcast during World War II his CBS radio broadcast in London. What was it like to get that particular award? Uh, exactly, and it's massive. It's, it, you know, just, just the idea, I mean, it took a great deal of courage in those years. And he, Edward, people think about 
um, you know, the Un-American Committee and all of that, and uh, Eugene McCarthy, and, and the courage that he, that Edward R. Murrow had in those days, but the fact that he uh, took great risks, physical risks, to cover uh, World War II, including reporting using that microphone from London as it was being bombed. It was a tremendous, uh, meaningful honor. I will say, though, that my reaction was much more sort of practical. It's enormous <laughs> and incredibly heavy. I mean, like, it is about this big, and it's made, I think, of bronze or something. So, I mean, I mean, if a pen is mightier than the sword, that thing is a <laughs> nuclear weapon, I'm telling you. And, but it also speaks, I think, to the power of story and the power of communication uh, and why, and especially now, truth matters. You know, the idea that forever, ever since the history, ever since the beginning of, of us, of humankind, having access to information we could trust was how we have emerged, survived, emerged from the middle of the animal kingdom now to the top. It's what has allowed us to save each other and ourselves. So that microphone means a great deal. It, it means more than just an award. And it must have been an opportunity for you as you were reflecting on this award and writing your, your keynote speech, looking back on your, your vast, your extensive reporting of humanitarian crises, of war coverage, coverage of genocides, of interviewing world leaders, your, your decades of anchoring the most popular morning show in America, a chance to reflect on your body of work. Was there a, a big takeaway from that? I think the biggest takeaway for me is that no matter what the world and your bosses uh, you're at the time, whether you're whoever you're working for, uh, whether you're an artist even, uh, the world pushes you sometimes with its own motivations to do things the way the world wants. But you need to listen to yourself. What is your purpose? Why are you here? Why are you doing this work? And listen to what you can bring to the work, whatever the work is that you're doing. And I think that what I'm, my takeaway for me is that I didn't forget that voice that said, remember, remember why you're doing this. Remember the people you're trying to give a chance to be heard. And I think staying true to that is, is the thing I'm most proud of. This is the work I'm most proud of, the, what they gave me an award for. So, and I think that, you know, I know artists who the same, you know, that they're pushed in one direction. Well, this is the work that will sell. Well, what about the work you're supposed to do? You know, a, a company that is supposed to make this and they, they get pushed to maybe make it, maybe a little bit le with a little bit lower quality, but that's actually not why they got into it. How can you do the work that you were meant to do, that, you're per that you feel a purpose towards doing? And I think, I think the struggle to stay true is one that we all experience in life. And I'm just glad that I didn't um, forget that, uh, even though there are many, many, uh, many hurdles to even getting this work done. I mean, most of these kinds of, most of the stories that were awarded are ones that I had to fight to get green-lighted. It took years to get uh, bosses to agree to cover genocide uh, in Darfur. And, and in fact, that's, that's the line, I think. If journalists ha uh, have to cover anything, it is that, is when we are, it's our capability to be inhumane to each other and to wake people up to, to why that, to what we all know, and that is that, it, that we can't tolerate that. 
just as I think people are waking up, have been awakened to what's intolerable in this war in Ukraine. Um, there is a core compassion and goodness in humankind that I have seen over and over again, even under the worst of circumstances, covering the worst of, of inhumanity and, and suffering. And this core, deep compassion, this wish to save each other, even people we don't know, I've, it's, I've been reminded of it over and over again. And it's a kind of beauty that I wish we could all see in ourselves, especially now when we've moved away from our compassion towards anger and fear and mistrust for a lot of reasons that are not our fault. Uh, so I know you've said that you, in the kind of reporting that you do, you have to have faith in humanity, that they'll open their hearts. And of all the reporting that you've done, is there a story or two that really stuck with you through the years? There's so many. I, I, how much time do you have? I could, <laughs> I, there's so many stories. I think one story that, that though, has um, really stayed with me is the story of Sifa. Um, there are many stories, but Sifa was a young woman in Congo in a war that was little covered. It, uh, more people had died in that war, and women were particularly being targeted in that war, um, which is ongoing. Uh, it's changed, but it's, it's still, it still persists. More people had died than at that time um, than in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. And we were trying to basically document what was happening to women there, and so we went in and, and we found a hospital where a doctor was really upset that the world wasn't paying attention. And without thinking, he, he just led our crew directly into an operating room where we saw this little girl. She was a teenager, uh, maybe in her 16, 17. She was naked under a blanket. She was shivering. Her hand was on the metal table next door and it was shaking. And as any one of us would, you know, you want to, and I didn't know why we were in there, but I could see her fear. And so I held her hand and tried to make her feel a little bit better. And before I, I said to the team, we've got to, we, we should not be here. So we backed out from where we should not have been. And the next day when we went, I remember asking her what had happened, telling her who we were, apologizing for barging in and asking her if she would tell her us her story. And she, she did. And she told us her name was Sifa, that she had seen um, these rebel soldiers under this rebel leader named Laurent Nkunda, who we later interviewed, how they had come in and they had killed her parents right in front of her and then they took her uh, and kept her for months and they chained her to a tree taking her wherever they went and when they finally decided that she wasn't worth anything to them anymore they left her chained to a tree and she talked about how she cried out for help and how men from a nearby village heard her cries and came and, and cut the chains and carried her carried her to the hospital where we found her so that's when I asked her do you want revenge? And she said, no. What I want is to rise from this bed. I want to thank the men who rescued me and carried me to safety. I want to work for God. And if there is a chance, I want to feel a mother's love again. That's a voice that we all need to hear of a young woman with that kind of depth. And the phones lit up at NBC Nightly News when that story ran. People were calling, wanting to protect her, defend her, contribute, do something all over America. People in America 
who had never knew about this war now knew something about it. They, they, they didn't know this child's language, and yet they cared about her. They didn't know her culture, and yet they cared about her. And, and in fact, they may not, all of them, even have easily found, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo on a map. I mean, it's, you know, we don't think about it. And, and yet they wanted to save her. They opened their hearts, not because they saw a little girl in Africa. They saw their mother. They saw their sister. They saw their daughter. They saw, they opened their up, hearts up to a human being. And that is what we are supposed to do. You opened eyes, you opened hearts. People heard, uh, saw what was happening. You know, you talked in your TED Talk in Portland a few years ago about how some reporting, maybe like that, can cause trauma, even PTSD. And you said you spoke from personal experience. Have you had that sort of thing impact you personally when oh, you sure. suffer trauma? Absolutely, repeatedly. It's, it's a risk of doing this kind of work. I think uh, after Haiti, after the earthquake there, and the, uh, you know, we, it was just uh, so devastating to see the kinds of wounds and uh, injuries that people had and sort of the inability to sort of save people. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, NBC called in um, psychologists to help because we had lots of people go eventually and they all needed help. But most of the, most of the time there wasn't this kind of uh, support. And, and uh, coming back from, I mean, just one after another, you know, these, especially when you see children and you wish you could have done more for the children, you know. But I think that um, there are ways to deal with that. I think trauma is, is you know, you, you sort of have to, I came up with this, uh, Something I do all the time uh, when I come back to a place like that, I, I think about the, I think about taking care of myself physically. So almost always I start running again, or working out. Um, uh, I try to take take care of myself emotionally. Uh, if I need a therapist, I'll go talk to my girlfriends, talk to other um, frontline reporters uh, and and p others who photographers who cover those kinds of stories, and we sort of talk it out. Um, there's almost a day or two of depression and your family is dealing with that. But then I also think again, why are you doing it? Is this part of your purpose? Is there some reason for this suffering that you're enjoying? And there always is. And then you get back up on your feet because every story, every one you go and do next deserves all of you. It deserves not a person who's disconnected, but a person who can lean in. So. Um, and so it's never been, it's been too much in, at times, but it's not been too much overall. It has, there has been enough purpose for this to have made it worth it. I have no regrets to about any of it. To true to yourself, as you said, you know, you talked in your keynote speech about integrity in journalism. You have been a, a champion of, of a renaissance in journalism, defending the truth. You and I are of an age, we grew up watching Walter Cronkite with our families, and he was the most trusted man in America. How would you describe where we are today in journalism when it comes to trust? Well, journalism has never been a popular thing, right? And, and I always say to young journalists, uh, people want to become journalists. If you want to be popular, you know, don't become a journalist because you need to not um, think about um, being popular. You need to ask people hard questions uh, with respect. Uh, you need to tell people what they don't want to hear uh, with respect. Um, uh, so, so, but on the other hand, uh, if you are earnest and you are pure in your motives, um, if you give people the facts that they need to know 
so that they can make up their own minds, which is, I, I care very much about. And that's, I think, why Walter was so trusted. R Walter, Walter Cronkite, who I got to meet at one point, my, my, my hero, I got to meet him. Um, you know, uh, the, the reason I think he was so trusted is because when he had an opinion, he, he marked it. He let you know it was going to be an opinion. But when he was not telling you an opinion, he, what he was trying to do and what you felt from him was that he was trying to give you, he respected you enough to give you the facts so that you could make up your own mind. He wasn't trying to persuade you with that tone of voice or that extra adjective or that word that didn't have to be there. And I think that that's exactly the opposite of what we're seeing today. Look, Walter Cronkite lived in a time when, when, when America, when the world was not awake on so many issues that should have been covered. It was largely a male, uh, Caucasian male-dominated profession in which there were so many stories that weren't covered that involved women and people who are not Caucasian and male that need now that we're awakened to and we're, we're smarter about our world and how we have to reflect and pay attention to stories about all kinds of people. So, and that's where we're, what we've evolved to become more of. But I think because of the technological revolution and its devastation on journalism, murdering thousands of newspapers in the last 15 years, local newspapers which have been the glue for trust in our communities. And it is a, I believe there's a direct link between the dramatic increase in mistrust in journalism and the, and the death of these local newspapers and the pressure on local television and national television and national newspapers and national magazines to, to, to become more um, bombastic to become less thoughtful, uh, to take less time to sort of look at how to make sure that they're striving to get, uh, to fulfill their mandate, the mandate of accuracy and independence and accountability and humanity and yes, fairness, with an eye always to the truth as your North Star. Um, and I think these, these, these great principles that have been around in journalism since the 1600s, since mass media really began with the, you know, with the big press and, and as we saw its first, um, uh, the Gutenberg Bible was its first um, great production, but newspapers were also uh, its pr production. And you know, um, this is, the, these, th these, these principles, while they should be debated and they should, um, um, evolve to, to the demands of, of, of our times, they still resonate, don't they? Uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's because they resonate, it's because, it's because we need these principles to maintain trust. Why should you trust someone who is railing at you and trying to manipulate you to, to think a certain way? Why should you, and I think the public should be doubting and it should be questioning. I think for us, for those of us who are journalists, I think we should step up and be more trustworthy. And if we can do that, we will be more trusted. Um, but in the end, you know, journalism is not science. It is a human endeavor, a beautiful effort to find something real that might help people awaken. And the people who are listening or reading are humans. And the people we're talking about and reporting about are humans. So there are just so many ways for there to be mistakes. But if there's a purity of motive, 
if there is a purposeful, a true wish to find the truth. Uh, there, is, there, is, there are great stories, there are great moments, there's great clarity and illum uh, illumination that's possible. And what's the alternative? That, that we don't try? That we don't try to be fair? That we don't try to be accurate? That we don't try to be independent? That we don't try to be worthy? No, we have to keep trying. And, uh, uh, and, I, and, I, and as for all its messiness and complication, it has, for me, it has been a, a noble, I have felt towards it a noble profession, even in despite, even in despite all of some, of some of the justifiable criticisms of it today. I think of it as a service job, and I believe in its future. When you talk about truth, truth often is suffers during a war, and we're seeing that right now in Ukraine with uh, misinformation, disinformation coming from Russia's Vladimir Putin, but also, as the New York Times has reported, from American conservatives, some, echoing the Kremlin's misleading claims. How do you see the role and the importance of journalism in real time right now in the coverage of Ukraine? Well, there's been some really fantastic coverage of Ukraine. There also has been coverage by people who have not had a lot of experience covering wars, and you can hear that in some of their, uh, in some of their reporting. But I would say that ultimately, um, the rise which has been occurring in this country of fact-checking sites, of fact-checking thinking um, in our reporting, of making sure that we're not just throwing information um, in front of people, but rather making sure it's true, that's actually foundational. We're, we're actually always supposed to be trying to make sure uh, something is true, and if we can't, to attribute it and to look for, for other voices to make sure that we, that we get closer and closer to what's real. So. I think that, I think it's vital. I think it's always vital. In covering wars, it's dramatically vital. But also, I think that given that there are more ways to gather data, I was just thinking, what, despite all the ways you can criticize where we are in journalism today, I was just thinking, what is going to stop technology now? What is going to stop journalists from being able to use technology to zoom in with using these videos. You can look at videos and find out whether they're doctored. They're, way, they're, they're, um, they're fingerprints that let you know. And if you find a video that's not doctored and you see Russian soldiers committing atrocities, you can zoom in and find out maybe what unit they're in. You can look, do your research and find out who's leading that unit. You can therefore help build a case for who then might be facing atrocity crimes, war crimes in the future. You can start to, in other words, reporters can start doing a kind of work that was not possible once. We can use Google Earth to undercover as we have mass graves. We can, if we can, what we, we can start to look and find out more information using, uh, looking for evidence in a new way. So there, I, I think we're on the cusp with, with the new journalists I've been meeting and, and teaching, these young people and their, and their earnestness and their, they are fully awake in a way that we were not to how much truth must be defended. Just as the public is now fully awake, I think, to the vulnerabilities and also the power of truth and also the power of mistruth. It, it's always been the case that people have wanted to manipulate others with mistruths. This has just always been the case. 
and journalists have had a job to try to defend the truth before it got, gets to the public, defend it, and, and we're flawed at it, but that's what we were doing. Now with social media, stuff is coming out in different ways. People are following RT, which is Russian television, on Twitter not knowing who they are, and information is coming out that way, with, which is not bankable information, right? Uh, we're, we're getting bots and other people who have an, an agenda, people with an agenda who want to sell us on, on information. You know, desire is a very dangerous thing. It blinds you to the truth. You want to believe so much in something being the story that you want to tell. You want this to be the way the story is told. It blinds you to the truth because you want that so much. There was a, a, a great bit of advice from an, from an old journalist. His nickname was Spud. I, I was a young kid, brand new out of college, reporting. And one time I was working with a bunch of other reporters, including Spud, on a story. We all stopped to have a, a beer. And so I'm having a beer with these older reporters. And Spud said, looked at me, he goes, Curry, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't trust anyone. And I said, don't trust anyone? He says, no, I don't trust anyone. Everybody wants to tell you the story as they want it told. Don't even trust your mother. I said, don't trust my mother? He said, no, even she has an ax to grind. <laughs> and then he said, you know what? Don't even trust yourself which I thought was the most important line. We all come forward with biases. We all want to believe. We all feel more comfortable with certain kinds of stories. And that's why journalists, that's the job of journalists that people don't get. Our job is to try to go past our, our to work in that painful way, to remove, think through it so that we can open up our own blinders past our biases, to try to keep looking, keep looking, you know, just insisting, asking, 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 looking, looking, looking for something that may not be the truth. I remember in Sudan there was a story about that, that looked, you know, we were told the story through an interpreter who had an axe to grind, right? He, he was furious about the war, about a little boy had found a bomb and it exploded and, and, and his mother, but I could see from the mother's, the way she was, uh, her, her facial expressions, I could tell that maybe something wasn't true. The story they told was beautiful. It was just like, this is like, boom, put this on television. It is a tearjerker. But I went back and I said, come on, give me, I want to know the real truth. And I found somebody else to help me interpret the story. It wasn't as good a story, but it was the truth. And that's the story I told. You do let the truth get in the way of a good story. You talked about Spud. I had an old newspaper guy tell me, even if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> similar, exactly. Similar That's thing. exactly. But what advice do you have for consumers of news, our viewers? How can they be defenders of the truth? Well, uh, don't put up with it. I think don't put up with Why do you put up with, with someone telling you what to think? Do you not dare to think for yourself? Why do you only pay attention to those who tell you what you already know, what you already have agreed to. Why not challenge yourself? Why not allow yourself to feel maybe a little uncomfortable if it's possible that what you might hear might be more the truth than what you think? Why not open up your mind? And I think that what I would say is that we should all demand, I demand, 
I yell at my TV just as my father used to. Uh, why, and I don't listen when I turn it off, when someone is trying to persuade me into thinking something or trying to manipulate me uh, with, with only one side or a piece of, of the facts of a story. I don't let them pollute my mind. Why do you? Now, we all have our own choices. There are excellent sources of journalism today. I read the Financial Times there pretty consistently straight, straight up. You can get great journalism, yes, out of the, uh, the, you can get it in all the ones you hate. You may hate the New York Times, but you can find great journalism there. You may hate the Wall Street Journal, but you can find great journalism there. You, can find, you may hate the Wall, Washington Post, but you can find great journalism there. The problem is not that the excellent journalism doesn't exist. It's that it's just harder to find. It's harder to track down. And that's really the struggle today. Um, I, I I, I, you can find it in broadcast, you can find it in local news. Oftentimes you find it from specific people. You think, I like this person, I like Laurel, I'll listen to Laurel. But I don't like so-and-so, but I like Laurel. That's where we are today, because our institutions have made a mistake. They have, many of our news organizations have pressured reporters to, to do what maybe they don't want to do so that they can survive this technological revolution that is challenging uh, the foundational economics of, of, of journalism. And we're still figuring out how to survive. But you know, there are already some wonderful, hopeful signs. Um, you know, uh, there are, journalists themselves have started new sites. Uh, one of them is one of the most respected today is called ProPublica. Uh, which is just creates bankable journalism and is now working with, is doing so much great investigative work that it's working with mainstream journalists uh, to make sure it's out before the greatest audience possible. Um, and now I can see, you can start to see uh, that this, um, even CNN, which has been so criticized for a lot of justifiable reasons, is now has new owners. And you can see it in their coverage. You can see almost a hard turn where they're sort of trying to do more more hard news because the new owners are saying we don't want any more of that stuff we want this stuff and I think to some degree this is because that that's the demand loud scream when somebody's screaming news at you take a moment and ask yourself why are they screaming you know uh, what are they trying what is their motivation so I guess my my I'm sorry I went on and on about that but I think my my advice to consumers is, is to make sure you're paying attention to what you're buying. And, and the goal is, the goal, uh, should, I hope your goal is to be informed, not just to, be, not just to feel better about your own opinions. Because what we need, what America needs, the best step any one of us, I can, de any one of us can make, the most patriotic thing we can do in America is to be well informed well-informed about the truth. Uh, and I think that misinformation comes from both the left and the right. There's a lot more misinformation to the point you're making about the war, uh, the Ukraine war, from the right at the moment. But I've heard misinformation from both sides on different issues. You, you've touched on this um, a little bit already about newspapers, the death of newspapers, but why do you think journalism, in, in particular local journalism, really matters right now? A local journalism is critical because it understands and it, it can answer the needs of a local community, right? So, um, and also because, you know, you're my gal, you, you're in my town. 
I, you know, I, I feel like I can trust you because you know my town, you know my city, you know where I go and shop, and so you might care about being in my town, right? So, so you want, you want to, to be represented, you want your needs, and also I can call you up and say, you know, I didn't like that story. Why did you do this? Why didn't you ask that question? And also I can call you and say, I think you should do a story about this. So that, that you know, local news is really, to me, it's the glue. I think the reason um, the East and West Coast was so surprised that uh, Donald Trump won the presidency was because of the death of local newspapers, because they weren't paying attention to middle America, because middle America was not being listened to, was not being heard. So if we want to know ourselves, we need local news. And, we need, and, we, and if we want to be connected to each other, we need local news. You know, the social media, what it's doing with its algorithms, is in addition to giving us a lot of fun and all the kinds of, and also helping us in, in many different ways, it's, it's algorithms are isolating us. It's giving us only what we're looking for. And only what we're looking for is making us more and more alone. It's making our worlds less big and it's making our world smaller. And so in this way, it's limiting us. And this is not healthy. Local news expands us, makes us think about somebody over there in that part of the city that I don't know. You know, local news makes us pay attention to our community and why we should care about it. So it's, it, to me, it's a linchpin. Now you got your award from WSU, but you are a duck. You went to the University of I am. Oregon. I am. Um, I know Oregon has a special place in your heart, even though your life and career have taken you all over the world. What does Oregon mean to you? Oregon, the University of Oregon? Just Oregon, the state of Oregon being back in. Oh, I, I wonder if I could ever have had the life that I've had, had it not been the nurt for the nurturing I've had in this great state. You know, I think Oregonians don't realize, I really don't think you know, uh, uh, and I now live in the East Coast, I don't think you really know, and I don't think I knew when I was living here, how great the state is. I mean, you, everything is here, you know, and I think you underestimate. I think Oregonians underestimate this state and themselves as a result. I, you know, I don't know why th this state should not aspire to be the best state. It has everything. The beauty of the ocean, the beauty of the mountains, the beauty of the snow, the, you know, the, the valleys, the, the hiking, the, the, boy, this great medical school you have here in Portland, and, and just the drive, the walk, the walks, the, the goodness of the people. Uh, there's so much to lift you. And I think so much focus is, has been paid on what is not so great. Every state has stuff that's not so great. And, and paying attention to that and fixing it is what this state can do if it can get more resources and be in a situation where it can really think through its problems and, and prioritize solutions. There, there is no reason why this state should not aspire to be even more, but wow, is it great. And, and I mentioned earlier uh, the nurturing I got in Southern Oregon. My father, um, when he retired from a career in the military, started um, subscribing to local newspapers to figure out where he was going to finish raising his family. We had been all over the world and we were in Norfolk, Virginia when he retired. And one of the papers he subscribed to was the Ashland Daily Tidings. And one day he read in the Ashland Daily Tidings, on the front page he saw 
the mayor's, uh, the mayor's wife's bean soup recipe on the front page. And he said, Dag Nabbit, that's the town for me. So he loaded all of us up in the station wagon and he drove all across country to Ashland, Oregon. And we and I thought, Dad, where are we? You know, because Ashland was maybe 15,000, maybe 14,000 then. And, I, and it was such a small town. They had great schools. I got so lucky at Ashland Senior High School. I had a great uh, English teacher. I had a great debate coach. Uh, the school just had everything. And then it had the Ashland Shakespearean Festival. And I got to, and I didn't understand half of what Shakespeare was trying to let us know, but I was learning about it. And then people were coming in from out of town, these tourists, and they had accents, and they, they came from England, and, and, they want, and I worked in a bookstore, and they asked me questions, and I got to understand the world a little bit better outside of Ashland, and it was a great place. And then I got a scholarship, and, and, I, and I had my English teacher made me go to college, and, and then and I applied my senior year after everybody had already applied because there was no way I was going to go to college. My father had just started going on the GI Bill for the first time going to college and nobody had ever gone to college before in our family. And so with this little scholarship from from Carpenter Foundation in Medford, Oregon. And, for Miss, and when Mrs. Hattie Converse made me go to that front office and I had to apply, there was only one college that could accept a, you know, that I could even afford the fee to apply to. I could only afford one. And only one college was still accepting applications and that was the University of Oregon. And so I applied and had a J school, a journalism school. So I just got super lucky. And boy, the University of Oregon just opened up my mind to everything that I, all these, I mean, I got to study everything, you know, from wonderful brainiac teachers. And I felt really insecure. And, but I, I just was eating it all up. And then my first jobs were in Oregon, in Medford and in, here in Portland. I got to work at KGW and I, I which at that time was owned by Dorothy Bullock and, and gosh we got to cover so many great stories and I fell in love with this part of Oregon too and um, so much so I didn't want to leave it when I was offered a job uh, in Los Angeles um, but I did and uh, but I've never really let go of Oregon and I come back all the time I, I have people here I, uh, uh, and uh, both my sisters are now here. I've got nieces and nephews. Um, we've helped put uh, one of my nephews through school. He's now a nurse practitioner here in Portland. Oh, and um, so, yeah, we're, uh, I've got another uh, niece who lives down in Southern Oregon. And um, so, yeah. Um, and uh, I've got friends here now who are trying to get me to move back to Oregon. So <laughs> well, we'd, me, love to, we'd love to have you Sending back. me real estate <laughs> notices and, hey, what about this place? And, so, uh, and my husband's seriously interested. So, we're, we'll see. Well, I hope you come back. Oregon you. loves you. And, and uh, well, you know, I, I know you started in Medford and uh, at KTVL, mm. at Channel 10 there, and you were the only, the first woman reporter, also the first or only non-Caucasian person working there. And then I saw a tweet, the, the current morning team sent you, showing their morning team with almost all women mm. and just one man. And I thought, you broke barriers and, and they kept breaking after you left. Well, women, you know, if given a chance, will we'll, we'll step up and, and do well. I think that, you know, though, I, I feel great uh, compassion for the men. You know, I, I think we often uh, think about the women, and, and we should, uh, because it took courage uh, after the 1965 Civil Rights Act that allowed women to work beyond being nurses and teachers, you know, to, to let us become something else. 
But I, I, I really think about the men, how much they had to open up. And, and in that newsroom, you know, they, what they must have thought, this kid out of college, you know, who didn't look like anybody else, who was a woman, and they were afraid that I was going to change the way they did things. And, um, and one of them, you know, really struggled and, and told me I, women didn't have news judgment. He was really struggling with it. But you know, they all opened themselves up to me. Eventually they embraced me. Eventually they taught me how to use that camera. Eventually um, they all came to my goodbye party and eventually one of them said to me, don't ever let anything I ever said stop you. You can go all the way. And I, and I really admire them. You know, it, it took men to open the doors for women, white men to open the doors for women. And they did. And it was our job to not mess it up. And I just tried to, I could hear, I could almost hear the women coming. And I just wanted to just be good enough, you know, and the goal was just to be good enough to make a space. People say today, oh, well, it's not fair that, you know, there's extra pressure on us. Well, heck, that's just the way it is. And if you want to make a difference, just face facts and do it. That's what you got to do. Try not to drop the ball because it's not just for you, you're working. And actually, what I also think is that actually, even though that was hard and it was lonely and I did cry in my sleep sometimes, I have to say that I was less lonely knowing that there were other women coming. And when you have a purpose like that, you know, it's a, it, it just gets you up. It steps, makes you pull up your boots and it makes you square your shoulders because you aren't really alone, are you? And then and you came to KGW in the early 80s after Medford. What do you remember about your days at KGW? Oh, we covered everything. I mean, I remember uh, flying in that helicopter, covering uh, all the ensuing uh, you know, eruptions of Mount St. Helens, covering City Hall, um, uh, covering homelessness, uh, which is still a problem here in the city. Um, really, I, I, I even, this, this, I was even sent to Nicaragua to cover uh, the Sandinistas. I mean, this, there was a kind of bigness in Portland, a curiosity about the world that I hadn't been exposed to, you know? There's a kind of, um, you know, there's a, a quality of life here, um, an openness here. You know, everybody, there's so many people here who come from somewhere else, but there also is this core um, that came from people who came all the way across the country in those wagons. There's a kind of grit here. There's a kind of, um, mm, there's, I, there's such a beauty in the people here. And there is coffee. I have to tell you. <laughs> we love our coffee. When, when, and and I, when, I, when I first went to Los Angeles, I couldn't get a good cup of coffee to save my life. And then when I moved to New York, I couldn't get a good copy to save my life. Starbucks followed me all the way out. And all the <laughs> other ones too, Pete's and everybody else, followed me all the way out. And thank goodness I did. But you know, um, yeah, it, th there is, Portland has something all to itself. There's a kind of, it stands on the cusp of the outside world you know, with Asia around, the, uh, and also with with this real, a lot of the original immigrants coming from you know, the Nordic countries. There's a real um, on the cusp of the outside world and yet um, a grit and a, and a firmness in the world of America and in Oregon. Um, and I, I just have, it's, I, I, I just, when I get off the plane and I step into Portland, I mean, it's almost like all this, whatever stress I didn't know I had, I just, it just seeps down. I'm, I feel I'm home. I'm glad to be here. Well, we 
love having you here. I just have a couple more questions. I just want to ask you, you have your own production company. Mm. Um, do you have anything on your bucket list, stories you really still want to tell people that you have an interview that you'd really like to interview? I mean, I, I, the list is too long. I, I can always uh, keep adding. Uh, and also I, I think about people as they come. You know, there are people who rise up who you haven't seen, uh, um, you know, before and you're interested in in talking to, but but no, I, I think my I will adhere to my purpose. I try to do stories that um, might do some good. I'm at that point in life where I'm getting to not have to do the stories that um, I don't really want to do, and I'm able to do more of the stories I, that I want to do, and that's why I did the docu series for PBS that connects people. The end, the idea of major world events, and there'll be stories from the Ukraine like that. The idea that this war, there'll be people who have saved each other in this, who will want to find each other again and reconnect. That's, so that was for that. And it's still on TV, the We'll Meet Again series. And the, the Chasing the Cure series was really about trying to help people who don't have access to medical care. The least among us, those who don't have medical insurance, um, uh, those who um, live in rural communities, and there are many of them here in Oregon, and then connecting them with the best doctors, the people who are, you know, the Harvards, all those people, and, and getting them diagnosed. And we did do that, and, we, and there are people who are now, they're healthier and feeling better. And in fact, there was a couple uh, out of Seattle um, who were suffering a, uh, a disease that, that was incredibly rare and no one could diagnose them and we were able to help them get diagnosed and they were only the seventh and eighth people in the entire world who were diagnosed with this disease and it was groundbreaking and doctors, we connected with doctors in overseas in, in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Europe who were investigating this disease and so it just, it's now part of now a new set, uh, you know, new research to help diagnose others who may be undiagnosed. So, I mean, I think about I try to think about this purposefulness. How can I do work that is, that is a force for good? And it's not that you're necessarily going to get there because you also have to, have to remove that motivation. It's that you're going to try and that trying is enough. And so yes, there's a, there's a, um, a documentary series that I'm work, thinking we're still in the ground stages of and there's an interview series that um, I'm in the ground um, on the ground floor of, um, but but I, my aim is always going to be the same. What good can come of this? Well, can it? Is it hard? Is it maybe not going to? Maybe it won't be successful, but good might come of it. Let's go, let's go. We know you'll always be true to yourself. As we wrap up, um, a final thought for our viewers. Mm. I guess. Uh, just thinking about that off the cuff. Um, I guess the thing I would say is um, I believe that humanity, because I'm also a student of history, I'm a forever student of history, that humanity as I have seen it th through my studies but also through the, my work and seeing some of the worst of humanity. I've concluded that we, if you step back, it is almost impossible, I would submit to you impossible, not to see humanity move, stepping up and up and up, and then falling, and then getting back up and stepping up and up and up. 
away from poverty, away from starvation, away from war. And the reason for this is truth. We open ourselves up to each other and try to help each other survive and rise. This is why we have. This is how we have risen through time. How we've saved each other. The reason we even still exist, even though there have been times in human history when we could so easily have um, gone extinct. We came very close in our ancient history. But how did we survive? Because we were able to communicate, run, we could, we could communicate and save each other when we were hurt and we protected each other. We are now in a time when we have stepped down. We have fallen. But I have absolute faith that we will, as we always have throughout history, reawaken, find our compassion, be able to hear again more truth, and we will rise again. It is almost impossible to think that we won't. I just hope we see it in our own time. But this faith uh, in the future is why I have done my work, why I've chosen humanity, chosen journalism, and to, to try to conduct it with humanity. Um, because I, and it's, I've not been, I, despite everything, uh, I've not been dissuaded, despite all I've seen, that, that this is the way of things, the way of the future. And so we all have our part as mothers, as teachers, as citizens, to stand up for truth. We all have that obligation uh, uh, and, and to not perpetuate it, to perpetuate misinformation and to have the courage to trust again. So that was a long last thought. Well, that's but good. But there to, you are. Good to end <laughs> on that message of hope and that call to action. With Anne Curry, thank you for joining us on fun. the show. And thank you for helping to set the gold standard at KGW. So many of us who followed you and have stood on your shoulders and tried to follow your uh, example. So thank you so much. I was one of many, but thank you. And thank saying. you for being on the show. Thank you, thank you. Laurel. Great yes. pleasure to speak to you. To you, Oregon. <laughs>